Good morning, welcome, Happy New Year to everyone. Glad that you're here. How many of you actually stayed up to midnight? Most of you. All right. I didn't. I did, but not by on purpose. <laughs> I just happened to still be up doing some stuff. Well, we're starting a new year with a new series, and a new series is called Brand New. So everything's new, right? Uh, I got to thinking uh, a little over 27 years ago, a new church was started, and you're all sitting in it. Uh, you're all part of it. Uh, Smithsburg Valley started uh, in 1989. Uh, Hoover's were there. I wasn't. The Hoover's were there. Um, Deb and I came along about uh, a little over a year later. In fact, it would be 26 years ago today that uh, Naomi and Deb and I and our kids started attending. And then 25 years ago today, I became the first full-time pastor, only full-time pastor uh, the church has ever had. So we're on a 25, 26-year run. But anyway, when we started this new church, when they started this new church, it was going to be different. For one thing, it met in a community center, Chooseville. And some of my memories are there, I guess, aren't so pleasant. Uh, getting there on Sunday morning and sounding like, smelling like beer from the party the night before. Uh, Wednesday night, we only had part of the building, and we have a prayer meeting and a children's ministry. And I still remember trying to pray with achy, breaky heart, line dancing going on on the other side of the wall. You guys remember that? Uh, kind of crazy. But anyway, it's a different kind of church, right? And um, about 21 years ago, we moved into this building. And uh, we still were a little different. Uh, we didn't have pews and uh, uh, so forth. But anyway, it was a pretty, pretty traditional setting. And uh, after a year, we, we, people weren't coming. We thought, wait a minute, we've got we, we to figure this thing out. And so we started making some changes, and we've made, continually made changes over the last 20 years to try and be in a church the unchurched people love to attend because the unchurched people loved Jesus, Right? And the old environment church, and maybe you've been in one of those where, you know, we had all the painted block walls, uh, church I grew up in. And it wasn't much about environments. They all kind of looked the same. But now church tends to be about environments. And uh, our children's ministry, the ladies, mostly ladies come and they completely redecorate the whole children's ministry every month. And it's about environments. And environment in here is different. We block out natural light. We control the lighting. And we do the different color lights and smoke or fog and all kinds of stuff and the music's different. Um, the whole goal is to make it uh, feel accessible to everyone. Because to be honest, when you invite people to church, if they think traditional church, thanks but no thanks, right? Uh, they don't feel it's accessible or they don't feel they'll be accepted. And it's interesting, if somebody puts something on Facebook about, I love my church, you don't see pictures of guys in suit and ties standing behind a box, or you don't see a choir, you see something more like what you see here, don't you? Um, again, trying to be more accessible. <clears throat> now, with all the changes the church in general has made, and our church has made over the years, there are still some things that we're holding on that's holding us back. And part of the proof of that is the place isn't full, is it? There's still things we hold on that is holding us back, keeping us from being a place the unchurched love to attend that feels accessible, feel acceptable. Now, most of the things 
that you've resisted over the years about church and your friends and relatives resist about church are things the church should resist. And many of you probably have dropped out of church somewhere along the line. And the reasons you did and the things that you didn't like or didn't care for are things that probably shouldn't have been part of quote-unquote church. So that's what we're going to talk about the month of January. Now, it's going to get a little, little bit emotional because we're going to, we all have these quote-unquote sacred cows when we think about church, right? Church has got to have this or do this or be this. And I think we're going to find out, uh, we're going to have to let some of those things go. And that can be emotional. Now, to an outsider, what should church be? Or, or how, how should they think of church? And ideally, it should be this. It's a community or group of people who follow the teachings of a man, we would say Jesus, sent from God to explain God and clear the path to God. Now, that's what it should be. Now, do you find anything to dislike in that? Anything disagreeable in that? You might not believe that Jesus was God. You might not agree with the teachings, but you wouldn't have any problems with a group of people getting together, following the teachings of a man, and explaining the way to God and clearing the path to God. You wouldn't have a, a problem with that. And, and your neighbors or your friends, your relatives, people you work with, wouldn't have a problem with that. And then Jesus came along and said, hey, I know there's all these Jewish commandments, but I'm going to give you a new command. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. And let me ask you, does this sound like something that you would dislike? This would be something you would reject, you would resist. Um, basically, he said three things, but really it's just one thing. All right, a one verb, actually. And here it was. Jesus said, okay, here's what I want you to do. <clears throat> Don't do anything else. This is what you need to focus on. Love God, love one another, and love your enemies. Now, do you think anybody has a problem with that? They might not agree with there's even a God, but if you want to love God, go ahead and love God. Certainly, everybody would approve, approve of loving one another. Loving your enemies, that's a little bit strange, but I want to do that, it's fine. That's not something people would, would resist, would it? In fact, love is kind of attractive, isn't it? Now, the only thing that they could object to or should object to is our loyalty to Jesus Christ. This goes back 2,000 years. Uh, the problem the early church had was everybody else said, Caesar is king, and the church said, no, 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 Jesus is king. It's really not a, a religious argument. It's more a political argument, right? Uh, that's the thing that upset people. It upset, upset the Romans. It upset you know, religious leaders. It upset other people. Uh, such loyalty to Jesus. He's our king, not Caesar. And so they were persecuted for 300 plus years to church because they wouldn't bow down to Caesar. <clears throat> now, the things that the church, early church, uh, unchurched resist about the early church was not how they dressed or their music or what their buildings looked like. They didn't even have buildings, did they? They certainly did, didn't object to this, did they? Didn't understand it, but they didn't object to it. Now, wouldn't it be cool if today's church, church uh, uh, 2017, was that kind of church? People wouldn't resist. People wouldn't get upset about, you know, what we teach, what we believe, where we go, what we do, what our buildings look like. The only thing they could object to is the fact that, well, they wouldn't object to this, but the fact that we have a loyalty to somebody named Jesus. And we said this and we teach this, we believe that if you follow the teachings of Jesus, you'll be better at life 
and your life will be better. In fact, even if you're not a Jesus follower, meaning you don't really believe he was God, you really don't believe any of that stuff, if you just follow the teachings of Jesus, you know, do unto others and have them do unto you, your life will be better and you'll be better at life. You'll be happier, you'll have more joy and peace, contentment, and you'll be better parents, better children, better spouses, better members of society. So, how then did the church get so resistible? Hopefully you invite people to church and they don't come, right? It's, it's easy to resist. Um, so this is a good series to invite them because we're going to talk about the stuff that we shouldn't <laughs> do, the stuff they don't like. Uh, but how did that happen? Jesus was almost irresistible. So what happened? So we're going to kind of build this over the next few weeks, what happened. And we're going to find out it didn't come from the church adding new stuff. It actually came from old stuff that got back added in. And we're going to use something we're going to call the temple model. And let me explain to you what the temple model is. Uh, temple model is where you believe there are sacred places. You know, this place is more holy than this place. All right? Believe in sacred places. You believe in a sacred, sacred text, sacred writings, sacred pronouncements. You know, these, these, these are special. They're different than everybody else's, what everybody else has said. Uh, sacred men always seems to be sacred men. Don't, don't usually, it's not usually women. And then these sacred men are ones that, in these sacred places, interpret the sacred text to the sincere followers. And these men are important because they tell the followers what you should do and not to do. Now we see this in all ancient religions, including Judaism, of course, but the Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, all these ancient religions. But you also see it today. And the sacred men control the followers. They control the, the truth, so they control the followers. And we see it in all religions today, unfortunately even in, in Christianity, which we're going to talk about. But we see it in the Middle East. And sacred men get up and read sacred texts in sacred places and tell their sacred or sincere followers to do horrendous things from our opinion, right? But because they're sacred men with sacred texts, the followers believe it. And they actually do stuff like blow themselves up, kill other people. That's how powerful the temple model can be. And unfortunately, it's alive and well today. In fact, I make this statement. It grants extraordinary power to the sacred men in the sacred places who determine the meaning of the sacred text. Because if you're a follower and I'm the sacred man, I can tell you all kinds of crazy things to do. But because I'm sacred, <laughs> what I say is truth, you believe it. Now, This is not what should be part of the church. Uh, why not? Why shouldn't it be? Well, because the arrival of Jesus signaled the end, the complete end, the abolishment of the temple model and the beginning of something entirely new. This is kind of our, the framework of our series for the next four weeks. The end of the temple model and the beginning of something entirely new. In fact, we talked about this two weeks ago. Before Jesus left, he said to his followers, I want you to go into all the world. 
interpreted to mean leave. You're in Jerusalem. Oh, but this is the holy place. This is the holy city. There's the temple here. It's the holy place. No, no, Jesus said, no, no. I want you to leave and go into all the world. Why? Because this place is no longer sacred. You're sacred. And you're sacred. And you're sacred. Not this place. And so, this Jesus model, if you will, was something brand new, completely new, entirely new. Let's say entirely new together. Entirely new. Let's do it again. Entirely new. But how do we know? I'm going to give you five reasons how we know that this Jesus model was entirely new. First, Jesus predicted a new movement. Predicted a new movement. Back in uh, Caesarea Philippi, city used to be called Philippi, but then Augustus Caesar was Caesar, and so they added his name, so now it's Caesarea Philippi. Jesus asked, hey, uh, we know who Caesar is. We know who Caesar is. Uh, who do people say I am? And it's kind of weird, their answer. Disciples said, well, maybe you're John the Baptist resurrected. That's what people are saying, which is, or, or uh, reincarnated, but which is kind of weird because Jesus and John for a while lived, lived at the same time. And then others say, well, we think maybe you're, it must have believed in a lot of reincarnation. You know, one of the, you know, Elijah or one of these other prophets. Then Peter speaks, speaks up and says, hey, 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 let me, let me tell you what I think. I think you're the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one that we've been waiting for. And Jesus said, Peter, you didn't think up of this on your own. God's revealed this to you. And then he said this to Peter. Now I say to you that I, that you Peter, which means rock, see I'm one of these sacred men and I interpret that and I tell you that Petra in Greek means rock, all right? And upon this rock I will build my church. Now they, are they going to build a church on Peter? Is the church built on Peter? No, it's not built on Peter. So what's the rock refer to? It refers to this pronouncement of Peter that you Jesus are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the one we've been waiting for, our deliverer. That's what the church is going to be built on. Now, unfortunately, when this word church was translated into English, they mistranslated it. It really literally means, the Greek word is ekklesia. There's another Greek word, see? Uh, ekklesia <laughs> means gathering, assembly, or congregation. And, and the earliest translation of the Bible into English by Tyndale, he actually translated the word. He put the word congregation in there. This rock, I will build my congregation. But that wasn't politically correct. In fact, uh, he had the guts to buck the system. And you know what happened to Tyndale? Actually burn him at a stake, at the stake. So he was killed for his <laughs> uh, beliefs. So they included a German word, believe it or not, that means house of the Lord or building, and they translated it church. So now the church could refer to a building when the literal, literal word is people or group of people. So... He started a new movement. He also instituted a new covenant. This was huge. This was big. We'll talk about this. <clears throat> a new covenant means a new arrangement, a new way of doing things. We used to do it this way. We're not going to do it this way. And uh, he said, you don't need anybody to be between you and God. You can go to God all by yourself. Which this was huge. This was big. And um, Luke was recording this. And Jesus was saying it. 
the night before he was betrayed, after supper, he took wine, said, this is the new covenant. This is a new contract, new agreement, new way of doing things between God and his people. It's confirmed with my, by my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Now, wait a minute, Jesus. <laughs> um, why do we need something new? You know, this has been going on since Abraham. We've got this method, this religion, this way of doing stuff. Jesus said, no, 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 we need, we need something entirely new, way of doing things. And it's confirmed with my blood, which they didn't understand for another 24 hours or so. Of course, Jesus was whipped and beaten and nailed to a cross. He also gave us gave new meaning to the sacred text, which was also huge. In Matthew chapter 7, when he first, chapter 5, verse 17, he's preaching basically his first sermon that we recorded his sermon. And he said this, Don't misunderstand why I came. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses and the writings of the prophets, basically the Old Testament. And I didn't come to abolish them. It's bigger than that. It's better than that. I came to accomplish their purpose. Now this was huge. He basically said the whole Old Testament is pointing to me. Now, if you're a good Jew, that's blasphemy, right? It's pointing to the Messiah, not to you, Jesus. And it's like the Old Old Testament is cocoon, and I am Jesus that come out as a butterfly. And then to abolish it, I come to fulfill it. I am the one it's pointing to. Jesus also instituted a new movement-defining ethic. You know, you have these 630 rules, and now you've got the Ten Commandments. But that, no, 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 no. We're going to make it much more simple, much more easy. Uh, not easier, but easier to keep track of. Just, just, just basically one commandment. <laughs> you, need, you need some guidelines. You need some guardrails. And here it is. I'm giving you a new commandment. Really didn't sound all that new. It's in the Old Testament. Love each other. But then he added this part. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. So this goes, this goes deeper than just some rule you follow. This is the, the driving ethic of your life. Love God, love other people, even love your enemies. And just before he said this, you know what he did? Came into the upper room for the Passover meal. Jesus takes his armor, outward garment off, grabs a towel, grabs a bucket of water, and washes all the disciples' stinky, dirty feet. Now here's the thing we need to remember about this. this. Jesus did something none of them would have done for each other. Peter wouldn't have washed John's feet. John wouldn't have washed Peter's feet. None of them would have done this for any, each other. So what Jesus was telling them, hey, you're going to be pretty important when I leave the scene here because uh, you are my closest followers. He said, anytime you start feeling like a big shot, you need to wash some feet. Because followers are no greater than their master. I'm your master and I've just washed your feet. He turned the, the leadership paradigm completely upside down. Up until this time, hey, the people, the followers are there for me. The leader. Jesus said, no, 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 no. From now on, you, the leaders, are there for your followers. Then he added this part. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're not my disciples. Not because you come to the to the temple and have your holy huddles. Not because you give money, not because you pray and read your Bible and all those things. All those things are good. All those things are great. But this is the way you prove it. Not because your neighbor sees you get up Sunday morning, get in your car and drive off for a couple hours to this building and come back. 
but do you love your neighbor? So it's not about law keeping. It's about love. It's not about animal sacrifices. It's about self-sacrifice. And we're going to talk about this a lot during the series. He says, you judge the vertical, your relationship with God, by the horizontal. In fact, Jesus said, you're at the altar and you remember somebody's got something against you. Leave it there and go and deal with that horizontal relationship and then come back. Basically, he said, God can wait. It's true too, right? (laughs) God can wait. And then Jesus gave us a new meaning to the Passover. And this is so huge, we we just can't even comprehend this. Let me try and illustrate this for you. Uh, Most of you probably know who Billy Graham is. He was this great evangelist for the last half of the last century. He's really old now. And he'll probably die soon. And can you imagine, after he dies, some some proclamation coming out. I know on Christmas you've been celebrating for 2,000 years the birth of Jesus. But from now on, I want you to celebrate the birth of Billy Graham. <laughs> we, we would laugh at that. We think it was crazy, right? Or, you know, you got Catholic friends, uh, you know, Pope Francis, he's got, when he dies, and uh, a pronouncement from the Vatican. Uh, we know at Easter you celebrate the resurrection of Jesus for 2,000 years, but now that the, our great Pope Francis has died, we want you to celebrate his resurrection. <laughs> we, we would think they were crazy. We'd laugh at that. That's kind of what this was like when Jesus said what he said at this Passover. He said he took some bread, gave thanks to God for it, then he broke it in pieces and gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body. Wait a minute, Jesus, this isn't your body. This is this this bread that we've been celebrating for 1,400 years that that the Israelites took out of Egypt, unleavened bread. This isn't your body. Do this and remember. No, 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 no. This is to remember Moses and, and our great deliverer. It's amazing these guys didn't get up and leave. When Jesus said this, it would have been blasphemy. But he was saying something entirely new. So the arrival of Jesus signals the end, the complete abolishment, the end of the temple model, and the beginning of something entirely new. That's the next screen. <laughs> so no more sacred places. Wherever you go, you're more sacred than any place you go. No more sacred text. I fulfilled the Old Testament. You've got to remember that the early church for 300 plus years had no Bible. Well, if you're Jewish, you had the Old Testament. If you weren't Jewish, you didn't have a Bible. All you had was love God, love your neighbor, and love your, your enemies. No more sacred men telling you what you had to do. And the church got off to this amazing start, even with all the persecution. But something happened, and we'll talk about that. Several different phases of what's happened over the years that the temple model creep back into the church. But Jesus said, no, it's all entirely new. And that's why the church is so resistible. When Jesus, who we follow, most of represent, is irresistible. So let me pray for you. Then we're going to serve communion to you folks this morning. Celebrate the beginning of a new year and what Jesus said. And then we'll let you go. Father God, thank you. 
We thank you for the fact that, that Christianity is entirely new. We don't have all that baggage, even though some of us have picked, back, picked some of it back up. Um, I thank you for the folks that are here. We've got a new start, a new year. Uh, we don't know the challenges we'll be facing. We don't know the good things are going to happen. But we know that you go with us uh, through it all. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you do not have to be part of our congregation, <laughs> our ecclesia, to participate with us. Uh, if you're a Jesus follower, uh, we are invited to, to share with us. Uh, I'll read the text again, and you'll be served. Uh, first the element, and then the second. We all come from different church backgrounds, and depending on your background, you may think there's something supernatural, something mysteric, mysterious going on. We do not believe that. As we read the text, it's going to say you do this at, to remember. Okay? It's a reminder. That's all we see that happen. I come from a tradition where when we did this, everybody got sad. Oh, Jesus suffered and died for us. I don't think that was Jesus' intent. We're not supposed to remember that he suffered and died. We need to remember that he loved us enough to celebrate, uh, to die for for us. So we celebrate the fact that we are so greatly loved. So with that in mind, let me uh, read Paul's ren- rendering of this event. On the night when he, meaning Jesus, betrayed, he took some bread, he gave thanks to God, and he broke it into pieces and said, this is my body. Again, this was radical to those disciples. It's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Thank you, Jesus that you were willing to come here to earth and suffer and die, that you loved us while we were so unlovable, and you continue to. And we thank you, Jesus. Amen.